Well, good morning again. We are glad you're here. Uh, today we will be going through the last part of, of Romans chapter 15. Some of you guys, many of you have been with us uh, for a while. If you're new here, I'll give you a little preview of what we talked about last week. <clears throat> but as we end uh, in Romans chapter 15, one of the most powerful books of the Bible, some people put it as number one. Because it just is such a powerful declaration of the Christian message. How can you read Romans and walk away with a different message than just the clear message that we are made right with God through faith alone in Jesus? And that Jesus, what's so beautiful, I think, about Romans is for 11 chapters. We're in chapter 15. Final remarks, just... We'll have a couple more weeks of seeing how he closes it, how Paul closes this letter and final remarks in chapter 16. Um, but for 11 chapters, it's here's what God did. Here's everything that God did. And it's all him doing it to make us right with him. And then chapter 12 is how we respond to this incredible grace that we've been given, this free gift of salvation and relationship that we've been given. Um, and so we're kind of in the back end here looking at how we respond. And uh, Paul, last week, uh, we looked at what drives this crazy man. Um, again, talking about this influential book, many people, uh, historians, put Paul as one of the most influential people in all of history. Um, I think it was People magazine that put him as number two in all of history as the most influential people. Um, and so what drives this crazy man to do what he does? How did God use him in such a powerful way? In Romans fifteen twenty, he shares what drives him. And it says this, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. He was completely driven by getting this incredible message, the greatest message ever heard, ever proclaimed to people who had never heard it. He knew he wasn't the one responsible to make them receive it or accept it. He saw a lot of people reject it. But he knew that one of our call as a Jesus follower is to go and to proclaim it and make sure people hear it and understand it. And so that's what drives him to do what he does. I don't know. Do what he did. Um, I wanted to say do what he does, but that was did. And uh, we, we, we talked last week. He, he went through some journeys. He had these missionary journeys, and he kind of circled back around and went to all these different places and started churches. We have many of the books in the Bible are letters to the churches in these cities. Uh, the church in Thessalonica. We have Thessalonians. The church in Galatia. We have Galatians. Uh, the, um, the church, uh, he writes in Rome, he's never actually been there. And he didn't start this gathering of believers in Rome. Um, and so he wanted to make sure that they knew the whole complete, the, the just very solid, clear gospel message. And that's why Romans, I think, um, powerfully proclaims that. So that's where he is. That's who he is. But here's what happens to Paul. And I hope that you can kind of connect and relate to this. He makes all sorts of plans for his life and for his ministry and what he feels called to do. Guess what? They don't all go as planned. Have you ever in your life made a plan 
and it didn't go as planned. Like you, you, I, I live in Utah. How did that happen? <laughs> I ask myself that question sometimes. Um, you know, or, or I'm, I'm in this industry, or I, I'm in this family dynamic, or I'm in, you know, whatever it might be. So often that, that is the case. And what do we do? And, and I sit in, it's funny because this came up in my life group on Wednesday. Um, what is God's will? And I think usually in our context and in our culture, when we ask that, we want to know step by step, what is God's plan? I want him to give me a roadmap for life. As, as you enter into a relationship with him, hey, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I want my roadmap. I want to know your will, God. I, I really want to know what I'm supposed to do next. And uh, we're going to look at just that concept of God's will and how do we really discover that and find that. And so uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, verse 22 through 33. And let's go through this before we really tackle that question. Verse 22 and see what happened to, to Paul's plans. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I've been preaching in these places. And so he's sharing with them a little bit of his journey. He had some plans. Hey, we already get an indicator that they're delayed. Uh, and then he goes on to, to share his future plans uh, with these uh, believers here in Rome. But now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. <clears throat> I, am planned, I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome, and after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. So he's got a real clear indication of where he feels like he's going to go, what's going to happen. He's going to Spain. Spain's uh, kind of... On the edge of the map, I think, back then especially. But his, his driving motivation just a couple verses before is to go and to proclaim the good news to places who haven't heard it and don't know it. And so he's like, Spain, that's, you know, that's beyond, far beyond where I've gone so far. Um, so he gives those detailed plans. Here, I'm going to stop by. You guys are going to you know, kick in a little of my, my, my funds needed. I like that. That's funny. He's like, be prepared. He's preparing them at least, right? Uh, but before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessing of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do is return uh, it, do in return is to help them financially. So we have this kind of interesting dynamic that went on with the original church, the first church that kind of explodes um, after the day of Pentecost. It's in Jerusalem. Uh, that church, I've heard estimates uh, that it is, I've heard, because historians just try to guess based on some numbers that we get in scripture of how many people are baptized and then the rate of growth and then we get some indication that every single day this church is getting more and more people to accept the good news and follow Jesus, that this church might be 20,000 to 100,000. And I always think that's funny when people are like, I like small churches. Well, the very first example of church we get is a huge, giant megachurch. So I don't know what you do with that. And then I always think, well, you're not going to like heaven very much. It's not going to be like, I like small heavens. There's too many people here. Um, anyways, so 
that's the church. But the weird dynamic that happened there is people came for this festival uh, of Pentecost, and then the church kind of breaks out there and is born, and, and they don't, they don't, they kind of stick around and don't go back to their homes and stuff. And what it creates is people who don't have their their financial support and their the means of them living there. They're actually in a foreign place, at least a foreign city. Um, and so, but they're they're still they just don't want to leave, uh, even though their their instruction that God gives them is go, go to the outermost parts. We get Acts one eight go. And share this good news to the places you came from. But they were like, no. We want to huddle together as Christian believers. And 2,000 years later, we have to fight and push Christians to say, hey, go. Go. And to share the good news with people who don't know it. Don't just huddle together. So anyways, they're, they're hurting financially. So Paul goes around and he does what, what God's instructed believers to do. He goes to places they haven't heard. And he's collecting people here about how that group of people are doing and and that they need help and so Paul's collecting this incredible generosity just wells up in these new believers and like it says they're like how do you put a price on this what you brought us you brought us the best thing we could ever imagine the good news it 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 changes everything how can we put a price on that of course we're going to financially help and, and support uh, people who are, you know, who are sending that message out. And so we see that beautiful, uh, you know, description of what, what's going on. And Paul has plans. Again, we're talking about plans, but what happens when plans go sideways? So his plan is to take this generosity, go to Jerusalem. Everyone's going to be excited that he's back in Jerusalem, of course, as he gives and helps these people in need. And then he's going to turn around and go back out to share this good news. And eventually he wants to get to Spain. So that's his plan. Um, We left off in the middle of there, didn't we? As soon as I have delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to you on my way to Spain. And I'm sure that when I come, Christ will richly bless our time together. I do love, as you see in Paul's writings, he's this brilliant theologian. And, and sometimes, I mean, me anyways, I got to read very closely and reread how he puts things and the, the illustrations and how he's explaining things. Brilliant theologian. But what's, I think, awesome about him is sometimes I think if you might find someone who's really geared towards just being someone who can think in such complex ways, maybe today we might label them as like a big academic or something. And maybe they're not so good with people, though. They're really good with books and being smart and teaching and explaining. But Paul shows a beautiful example of really having deep, rich relationships and, and making a point to, to share his love for other people on a regular basis. We'll see that more in the next uh, couple weeks. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do this because of your love for me given to you by the Holy Spirit. Pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donations I am taking to Jerusalem. Verse 32, Then by the will of God I will be able to come to you and with a joyful heart, and we will be an encouragement to each other. And now may God who gives us his peace be with you all. Amen. And so, Here's the rest of the story real quickly. Paul goes back to Jerusalem, doesn't go as planned. 
If you want to read the detailed story, it's fascinating, and it's in Acts chapter 22. If you read what happens, he goes back to Jerusalem, and basically an angry mob tries to kill him or imprison him or punish him or something because they're so angry at the message that he's proclaiming um, that, that they, in their eyes uh, he is not following and obeying God, um, that, that he's going out there and trying to, trying to share the one true God with Gentiles. We've talked about that a, a, a long time as what is that difference. And we see that distinction and that struggle that God's people had to go, God wants to reach Gentiles. Jesus died for Gen- Who's a Gentile? Anyone who's not Jewish. Gentiles are just people who aren't Jewish. And the Jewish people, many of them thought, we are God's chosen people and, and that's it. And that's all he cares about. And we're the only ones that can be right with God. Well, Jesus came and said, I love the world. And I've come here as a sacrifice for the entire world. But they struggled through that. And many of the Jewish people struggled with that message. He goes back to Jerusalem, and this angry mob just is very upset with what Paul's sharing. There's an interesting point where he's able, though, to preach and proclaim what Jesus has done in his life. Um, and he, he, he actually, it says that he speaks in their own language, and the, the audience, the angry mob kind of quiets down and says, okay, let's listen to him. And he's like, I was just like one of you guys. Uh, here's my credentials. I was this... Uh, Pharisee among Pharisees. I followed this great leader in his footsteps. He was my teacher. I believed all these things that you believe and that you're so upset about. And then I took it a step further. I went out to destroy this whole new movement of people following Jesus and proclaiming that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. I went out, I went to councils to get permission to destroy these people. I went out and I was marching my way to Damascus because I knew some of them were there. And I went there and I had this incredible encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road and I was blinded for three days. And then he walks through his whole story. And at the end of it, they all became Christians. No, that's not what happened. At the end of it, (laughs) you guys, I thought many of you would know that story. Be like, no, Pastor Ben, you're wrong. Um, at the end of it, uh, and some may have, but, but ultimately the crowd um, is very angry as he proclaims that Jesus and the Messiah has come for the Gentiles. He said, so I've been out. You know what I've been doing? I've been out reaching the Gentiles with the one true God. And they were like, uh-uh, we've had it. And so they, they tried to, to attack him, basically, and the Roman guards have to intervene and take him up and take him away. And uh, they imprison him. They're about to flog him and, and try to punish him for causing all this disruption, I guess, is their justification. And Paul goes, um, uh, where is it? Where is it? Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen. And they're like, oh, oh, no. And they were scared. And they're like, oh, yeah, we have to. If you're a Roman citizen, you have to go to court. You cannot be punished without... Uh, going through this proper legal channels. Um, and he's like, and, and so um, this is all in chapter 22. You guys go home and read it. Um, so none of this was part of Paul's plan. Here's the whole point. 
None of this is like, well, and then I'm going to go back home. Then they're going to try to kill me. (laughs) And then I'm going to be thrown in jail. Then they're going to try to beat me. Um, So he finds himself in this imprisoned in Jerusalem, and they don't know what to do with him. The Romans are like, this is some religious dispute that people are so upset about. He's claiming someone was resurrected from the dead and that that proves that they're God and and. And this is, this, there's no Roman law against what they're doing, and, and so there's nothing we can do. The Roman officials were kind of stuck. And so he sat there for two years in prison. They said, well, if we release him, they're just going to kill him. So he sits there in jail, not a part of Paul's plan. Is he in God's will? Yeah, I think so. But is it part of what he planned and what he thought God wanted to do? No, I don't think so. And so he's sitting there in prison, and finally, him declaring his Roman citizenship and pushing that, he, he insisted on, on a trial and a hearing before uh, even in Rome. And so he, he gets put on a ship to go to Rome, and that's when he is shipwrecked. Um, and in the midst of that, he gets incredible influence, even on the ship as a prisoner, uh, they get caught up in the storm off the shore of Malta, and uh, the, the, even the citizens are watching this happen as, oh, there's a ship out there, and they're struggling and stuff. And eventually, they got close enough to shore where the prison guards thought, well, we can jump overboard and swim to shore, and we'd be okay, but we are responsible for these prisoners, so we better just kill them all, and then we'll go swim overboard and go, go to shore. Paul steps in and says, I got a different idea. Plan B, maybe. Um, and, and Paul convinces them because wherever this dude went, he had incredible influence. Um, the way that God used him and transformed him and was working in his life, he had incredible influence in people's lives. And, and so what happened is he convinced them that, hey, us who can swim, we'll swim. The rest of us will break up the ship and, and, and grab onto parts of the ship, and eventually we'll get get washed ashore, but we will not leave. We will not escape. And the guards believed him, and they were convinced. Paul goes to shore, and as the city's watching this, they're actually going, hey, we're going to kind of take care of these people as they come in. They start a fire so that they can warm up. They come in, and Paul's like helping getting firewood for for the fire, and he reaches down, and he's bitten by a venomous snake. And the locals are like, we know that snake. We know what happens when you get by it, bit by it. And they're like, Paul, dude, you are one cursed guy. As they, I think, hear more about what he's been through. And he's in, you know, he's shipwrecked and he's in prison. And they don't even, can't even tell you why he's really in prison. And, and then he gets bit. And they're like, dude, you better sit down, have your s'more, and you're just going to die. <laughs> so the, the villagers are just sitting there watching, waiting for him to die. But he doesn't die. And God does this miraculous healing, physical healing in him. And so then they're convinced he's a God. And uh, Paul's like, no, no, I'm not a God. But it gives him an opportunity to share the good news to this island and to leaders on the island. None of this was Paul's plan, right, as he's going through all of this. And so here's what I want you to understand and me to understand. as, As we look at number one, understanding God's will. We want... We go to this island, we, we have a meeting with the leaders there, we, you know, many of us, it's, okay, I go to school, I meet the one, 
There's only one, and I meet the one. All our romantic comedies say there's one person. And think about that. If someone didn't find the right one years ago in history, it messed all of us up, right? Right? You're like, oh, yeah. But we have this idea, you meet the one, you, you get a good job, you have a comfortable living, you think about retirement the entire time you're working, you think about your dream retirement, you, you retire, you die at 99 because 100 seems too old, right? Uh, in your sleep, you die with your, your one with you asleep at 99. You're both the same age. I don't know. So that's our dream, right? And that's, that follows the American dream. This is, you know, this is what my family looks like in the process of all of this. This is what my life looks like. How do I get that? Because I read this Bible and it talks about God's will and plan. And I'm sure somehow that fits into there. How do I get that? And so when we, in our American, I think our Western way of thinking, think God's plan, we want the instructions. But number one, God's will is far more relational than it is rational. It's far more relational about where we stand with God in our relationship with him and how we relate to other people. That is far more a part of God. I want you to get this. I think this will be clear by the end. It's not about what we want is um, our plans laid out, but what God wants us to focus on is our goal, is the goals that he has for our life. And let me share how those are different. I laid out the plans that many of us, you're like, yeah, that's my plan. Get a good job, find someone, find the one, have this family, retirement, you know, that's our big question, where and how we retire, but that's what we're looking forward to. Like, there's our plans, but here's a goal that God calls, I think, his people to. My goal for my life is to love God more and more every day, to follow him, to love others. You really can't love God without loving others, and to bring people to heaven with me. People say you can't bring anything to heaven. Yeah, you can. You can bring the most significant thing we have around us to heaven. Other people. That's actually God's plan for his followers is to use us to share this good news so that other people would receive it and accept it and that they would come and, and come into that relationship with God. So, so there's goals. Now, do you see the difference? Your life may look totally different than you planned. You might be like Paul and like, oh, oh my goodness, what is, what is going on here? I was just going to go to Spain. I was going to pick up, you know, a little support from these people in Rome. <laughs> I had it all mapped out. Well, I'm going to Rome, but it's in chains. But you think about that. If his goal is to love God, to follow him, to bring people to heaven with him, to love other people, that doesn't change in the shipwreck. Instead, he goes, well, I'm shipwrecked. Or, or before we even back up, I'm in prison in Jerusalem. Huh, I have a, a message to proclaim. I have a captive audience because I am literally chained to other people. This is like a, a pastor's, you know, this is what we fantasize about. Like having people hear and listen to our message and they have no option to leave. And they have really, I mean, his small group that he started in prison, great attendance. No one ever missed. <laughs> 
Everyone was always there. The guards even, they were always there. I mean, he had this captive audience. So his goal that he felt called by God to, to fulfill in his life, that didn't change, right? While I'm in prison, my goal doesn't change. I'm proclaiming Jesus to my, to, to my, prison, uh, my fellow prisoners and the, the jailers. And, and, and I'm on a ship and we're headed to Rome and I'm sharing Jesus with the people running the ship and the, and the other prisoners. And I get on an island and, oh, hey, I'm sharing Jesus with the, the leaders of the island and the, the, the villagers in the island. And I'm, I'm, I'm in prison in Rome. And that's where we get some of these letters that, uh, like, the Philippians is written while he's in Rome, in the prison in Rome. Um, so his goals of life don't change, but he had no idea what his plans would look like. Romans 12.1 gives us this picture, this idea of what God's will is for our lives. And I know we've looked at it, but listen. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That type of discovering God's will, learning that you worship him with everything in your life, has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with what job you have, not even who who you're married to. It's how you do marriage. It's not where you live. It's what you do with the relationships of the place that you live. That is God's will very specific. Now, specifically, sometimes we see beautiful, I could tell you examples in my own life when God gave me some real specific instructions on where to go and what to do. But most of the time, it was, it was more understanding these goals that God had for my life, for my life. Matthew 6, These are some of the most well-known verses in scripture because it deals with this thing that always comes up, I think. Uh, of what is God's will. Uh, Matthew says, Seek seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. And instead, we go, we want the plan, or we've got a plan, and God, we want you to bless it. Instead of seeking God above all things, not knowing where life is going to change and turn and how it's going to come about, and understanding that we seek him in all things and live for him, that he's going to give us everything that we really need. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. I think that's one of the big things. That means that's, this is an important point. One of the big things is we're always at God's, what, what, what's, will, what's your will for my life? Or God, show me the plan you have for me rather than just going, God, what's your plan? What's your will? Let me just follow that and, and, and strive after that. James four thirteen through 17. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live to do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, 
and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. And so that's kind of a challenging, even a weird passage, I think, at times that we're like, what does that mean? It's saying, hold, plan. Nothing wrong with planning. Paul makes some plans. He's doing it to try to honor and follow God, but hold to them very loosely, knowing that we don't know the future. We don't know how many days we have. We don't know what God's doing in a certain situation or circumstance. So it's more about where we are in Christ than where we are in life. That should have been one of the points. It's more about where we are in Christ than where we are in life. Um, Number two, our goal in life should be how we live it, not where we end up. And I think that's sad. If you look at some of the stats of, of sadly, especially men, the number of years, uh, and sometimes it has to do with their profession or the area of the country that they live in or the area of the world that they live in, but there's some alarming stats about how many years uh, men particularly seem to live after retirement. And a lot of times it's not many years, and yet we're looking forward to just this this time. Um, but our goal shouldn't be how... It should be how we live, not where we end up. And so often we just focus on where we think we're going to end up in life. Uh, Philippians 1, 19 through 26. For I know that all you you pray for me, and the Spirit of Jesus helps me this... uh, I'm sorry, I can read sometimes. Um, Let me start over. For I know that as you pray for me, and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. So Paul is actually in prison praying and asking other believers to to pray for him. And he says he knows he's going to be delivered, but again, uh, it's not really up to him. He doesn't know exactly how God's going to do this. There's two ways. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. Uh, For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more uh, fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm, I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go and to be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sake, it's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he's doing through me. So Paul had this incredible, really famous statement of Paul's, uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and he's wrestling with this. And he goes, God's going to dele- deliver me one way or another, but, and I'm going to live. Uh, if God has years for me in this life, whether whatever my circumstances, um, my goal for my life is to live for him. Um, and, and think about that. Even Paul, in all the revelation that God gave him, didn't know all the details that were going to happen in his life and how God would use it. Uh, when life throws you a curveball, and the rest of your program there, just a couple more things, and this is a section where I try to be as practical as I can. Like, okay, well, how, how does that apply to my life? And, and I think many of you probably, if you've lived more than like 10 years, 
life has probably thrown some curveballs at you, right? You had no idea this was going to happen or that was going to happen or, or this person wouldn't be here with us or whatever it might be. Um, number one, pray for your wants and desires. Now, I'm not trying to contradict myself here. And I think the ultimate example is shared. I mean, we see it in Paul. He's like, here's the plans I have. Here are my very specific plans of what I want to do, when I want to do them. Um, but at the same time, he's like, ultimately, it's, it's God and what he desires. And Jesus, as I say, the ultimate example, we find in, in Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 36, as he's in the garden. I mean, we get, we get this, this prayer of his, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. That's pretty powerful that Jesus, I mean, he's, he's got enough faith, I think. Some people are like, well, you can, well, the reason you don't get something you pray for, you don't have enough faith. No, I think that's kind of a misunderstanding. What do we have Jesus here having enough faith? <laughs> um, we have Jesus living a sinless, perfect, perfect life, and yet there's absolutely nothing wrong with what he is praying. He's saying, look, I, I know what's set out before me, and he shares that in his ministry. He's like, I, here's what's going to happen to me. My life is going to be taken away. I'll be raised after the third day. But he knows what he's about to endure. He knows that he's headed for the cross. He knows he's, he's headed for that humiliation, that pain, that suffering, that separation that he's never had from the Father as the sin of the world is laid on his shoulders. He, know, he knows that's ahead of him. And, and in the midst of reflecting on that, he goes, you know, God, if there is any other way. So he's not saying, hey, we want something other than the will of God to happen, but is there another way? And that's a powerful statement to is Jesus the only way? in a culture that doesn't want to deny anyone or say anyone else is wrong. We don't want to offend anyone. Well, Jesus was very offensive to the point that they put him to death. And part of the offense was him saying, I am the way, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. That this is the only way. There is no other way to get to God, to be right with God, other than what Jesus has done. And it's offered to you and I as an option to put our trust in what Jesus has accomplished or put our trust in anything else, whether that's religion, whether that's morality, whether that's heritage, whether that's just, I think things will pan out, whether that's sincerity. Some people just think, hey, if you're sincere enough in whatever you do, God's like, that's cool. No, not according to Jesus. In the garden, he prays this, but, but just specifically for us in day to day, we can pray for the things that we want and we desire, and ultimately that God is, is, um, trumps it all. Number two, surrender to God regardless of the outcome. We don't know what's happening. You know, I look back and go, Paul, you lucky man. You had this opportunity to share with people who, who, who probably didn't even know. The, the, he, he spent a lot of his ministry uh, in the early days like trying to reach out to the Jewish people. He would go to a city and he would first go to people who had a foundation of uh, the one true God and of the revelation of, of Jesus being the Messiah. And, and then he would branch out to people who didn't have that foundation. But he was put in places, especially I think in prison and stuff, for people who they never even knew the one true God. They, they came at it from, from no um, 
no perspective whatsoever. And, and Paul had no idea that he'd have that kind of opportunity, I think, to reach those people. So sometimes we don't know what God's doing. And when life seems like, man, God, why am I here? What happened here? Um, that we, we trust God with the outcome. First Peter 4, 12 through 13, last verse I want to share with you. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials. Make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to you and to all the world. And number three, pray for closed doors when everything else seems wide open. So just a real practical um, point of, I know I've, as a pastor, I, I get that question a lot. What's God's will for me? What's his plan? What do I do next? And that kind of scares me and intimidates me. I don't want to tell you what job to take or what house to buy because that's our thinking. And I'm like, to, to love God and share him with others and love people, be connected to a church family. Like, you don't, no, 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 Ben. Like, tell me what color house I'm supposed to, what neighborhood should I live in? Like, I, I don't know. Where can you love God the most and share God? <laughs> ah, forget it. Um, anyways, but closed doors may be an opportunity if you think, hey, I've got three job offers. Well, well though, that's the filter that you use. God, do you want to close any of these doors? Because obviously, uh, this being in this situation in this job is not going to allow me to, to, to fulfill the big goals that you have for my life. Or, or um, you know, if, if, as I look more closely at these job opportunities, this one, they're asking me to do something kind of sketchy. You know, this just doesn't seem very above board, but they just say, well, that's what you do in this industry or whatever. Okay, easy, door closed. And so uh, I think there are often some practical things that we can bring to that. So I hope that as we look at Paul, and I think some people, they read that, la- that chapter 15 and they go, hey, what's happening here? Does Paul not know? Is this really God? Is God really speaking to him as he doesn't know that his plans change? Oh, I think that that is absolutely... I believe, what God had in store to encourage you and I that that ultimately we make our plans, but God is the one in control.